whatever you're dealing with, it's what makes you strong, where you think you're weak, where you think you're anxious, fearful, nervous, because you don't understand your value, because no one ever helped you understand that confidence and say, I am enough. These are the words of Ken Dubner. Welcome to Noble Warrior. My name is CK Lin. This is the place where I talk to other consciousness center entrepreneurs about their journey from warrior to commander to king to elder. We talked about their mental models and actionable tactics so then you can go on and build a future with greater fulfillment and impact. My next guest is Ken Dubner. He's a frequent lecturer at the UCLA School of Dentistry and the American Hypnosis Association. He's the founder of the Life Formula Method to help people break free from the self-imposed prison and step into their power. Ken talked about his superpower as a master hypnotherapist, involving his humor, involving his personality, involving his total openness about his history, which most therapists don't do. He said, I'm delightful, I'm engaging, I'm funny as fuck, so part of my superpower is my ability to make most people feel comfortable because I'm so upfront and irreverent about my own struggles because I'm so free and that want to be free like that. He's unapologetically himself. He wants to teach everyone else to do that. That's his mission in life. We talked about how he bulletproofed his mind, where he gets excited on stage, where everyone else gets frightened. We talked about transmuting your greatest weaknesses into your greatest strength the three steps to fundamentally shift your belief system. We talked about how to foster owning your accomplishments, the psychology of confidence, the different levels of depression, being adaptive and maladaptive in life, the comparison between martial arts and mental health, and the safety protocols uses to put people in psychological safety in minutes. Please enjoy my conversation with Ken Dubner. What started you on this path in the first place? Okay. For me, I first understood the mind in a different way when I was young. And it goes back to an experience I had when I was, you know, seven or so. And I was, we lived in an apartment on a hill and the hill overlooked a, a street that was really busy. And there was like a three foot embankment and then the street. Since then, I went back and they've actually put up a fence there. But it's 1960s, 70s, they just had the and you were in a busy street and you could just walk out. And I'm sitting there and I'm seven and I don't know what was going on. I think my dog had passed away on that street. I think he'd been hit uh, about six months before. And I'm looking at the traffic and I know how dangerous it is. And all I could think of was, should I jump? Should I jump in front of those cars? At seven years old. Seven years old. Wow. And I had... I still have a wonderful family. I thank God my parents are still with us and a great upbringing, kid in the suburbs. And, but I also have clinical depression and we didn't know about it back then. We literally didn't know about it back then. This is about 1971, 72. But it's been part of my life since then. What that experience taught me was the world changes quite drastically but it doesn't change on the outside because I was the same kid that day as I was the day before. And as I was the day after my parents were the same, my family was the same. The shift happened inside. And at a very early age, I realized something. I did something different. I used to call it going away in my head. 
just get really withdrawn and it seemed like I was looking at the world from far away and all the signs of clinical depression I was too young to conceptualize it. But I knew that things could shift and I knew it had nothing to do with the outside world. And that made me fascinated with the mind and how that happens. So at a very young age, I, I read psychology textbooks when I was in sixth grade. I just was fascinated with how that happens, but it mm -hmm. gave me this advantage over a lot of people, even people that I meet now that are my age or older clients that come in, the understanding that it's not the outside world, it's the inside world that makes the difference. That you can be having a good day, a bad day, but nothing's different. So many people think I'm having a bad day because of you. I'm having a bad day. Because Some circumstances. Of circumstances. I'm at, the I'm at the effect of the outside world rather than the cause of my own understanding. And to get that at a young age was huge. It also made me fascinated with the mind. And I studied a lot about the mind even at that young age. So depression has been a real big part of who I am. On, mm. it's just part of who I am. And as I say, depression for me, it's, it might be terminal. This depression may kill me one day, but today is not the day. And I may end my life. I'm, I'm in that group of people that one day may happen. And that sounds weird for people to just calmly talk about, but I'm not in my depression right now. I'm not in that brain chemistry issue. Mm -hmm. So you could say depression is the canvas upon which my life has been painted. Mm. And it's cost me dearly, friendships, family stuff, relationships, business for sure. The behaviors that came about because of it to try and cope and the ways that I avoided those feelings for a long time. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it made me fascinated with the mind. And so in school, I studied in college, I did human services, which was a psychology, sociology thing. I worked with mentally. Sorry, before we move on to mm -hmm. the to can you zoom in on the depression state a bit? So someone like me who is healthy mm -hmm. and in my mind, every single human beings have thoughts and, but they're fleeting, right? So mm -hmm. they're more of a simulation like, Hey, what would happen if I jump in from my car? It's like more right. like a, just, just how our mind works. It, we kind of project and, and that happens. However, it's, it doesn't stay there. Oh, move on. Next thought kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, so for me, I can, I gained a lot more compassion and empathy for people with depression after I watched a particular video online. It says depression is a lot like having the weather following you around. This is like looming mm -hmm. cloud and it's not the person doing certain things. It's just, is just there and it, sometimes it lifts because of biochemistry or some mental game shift mm -hmm. but you're living that cloud so for those of us that may not necessarily have clinical depression can you describe like how accurate is that mental image of having a cloud looming over you just describe that a little bit so that way well, one, we have more empathy and compassion towards others that have it and also have just a better understanding of what is it that we're talking about. Okay. And just to let the people know that are watching this or listening, we are going to talk about confidence. We are going to talk about how the mind shifts. I'm talking about my journey. I'm not an expert on depression. I'm a fellow traveler. I don't work with people with depression. It's something yeah. that you need to have a psychologist or psychiatrist work with. But my understanding and 
I've helped other people to understand it. So I'm happy to talk and I'm very open about my journey Yeah, because it is my journey. And it's been, I just realized uh, yesterday when I was thinking about it, 50 years ago, I had a decision to make and I made the right decision. And there's a picture of me with my son that I took before I told him the significance of it at that same spot, looking at that same traffic. Mm. So that gave a real closure to that experience. But there's so many ways to describe depression and some of them I've heard are very elegant. There's two things about depression that stick out to me. One is clinical depression caused by neurochemical problems that need to be balanced. There are levels, I call it Dante's levels of hell. It starts at the level of, I'm just not feeling great. I'm starting to question myself and I'm a little grouchy. And then now my body's feeling bad and all my aches and pains are coming back. And my wife will notice, oh, you know, your bad wrist or your bad thing. You have three, three things that are bugging you. You're wearing all these braces. Are you getting depressed? Because the body starts to break down. All the way down to the level of, I just want to die. And that's it. And the only thing keeping me from dying is I don't have the energy to go do it that's the lowest level. And at that level, you've convinced yourself the world's better off without you, mm -hmm. uh, that you're a drain on everyone. And no matter what anyone says, you're not going to take it in. And at that point, I have my own terminology. So anyone who's dealing with depression, no offense, but I call it crazy bill. I'm not crazy right now. When you're depressed in clinical depression, you are, it's a mental illness. Mm -hmm. It's not rational. It's not reasonable. Your brain is screaming at you to do something bad because you just want to get out of pain. The metaphor for me is depression is somewhere in the neighborhood, there's a van and it's driving around and randomly for no reason, it'll just come by and guys will jump out and throw me in the van and torture me for mm. an indeterminate amount of time. Sometimes to the point I just want to die to get out of the pain. Sometimes to the point that it's just taking me away from family and friends and doing what I want and everything in between. And then randomly they'll drop me back and I'll never know when they're going to come back again, mm. but I can hear them in the neighborhood. They're there. I know they're there. And it's that feeling that says, even on a good day, you got to get a lot done because you don't know when the bad day is coming. Mm. So that understanding, the feeling of, it's not something I can fully control because it's my brain chemistry. I can have an effect on it. In fact, it's why I figured out this formula was how I build myself up again afterwards. There's the depressive episode, but then there's the results, the disarray, the lack of confidence, the anxiousness, the social feeling of I don't want to talk to people. All the things that happen when you come back from being away for a while in your head they having to rebuild some things, maybe a relationship. All those things that I've had to do have caused me to figure out how to do that. So everything I teach people, in addition to having been what I've learned through hypnotherapy and teaching people through 25 years of helping people, it's the result of battle-tested doing it myself. This is what keeps me going on a, a bad day, on a real bad day. This is what keeps me alive. And so far, 50 years later, I'm still kicking. So I must be doing something right. That metaphor is, is one I think that some people relate to, but it's pain. It's just, you're in pain. You're in emotional, physical pain. I wish the word depression was a different word because yeah. people think I've been depressed. 
my family died, I am depressed. No, that's being depressed. That's not clinical depression. It has nothing to do with anything outside of yourself. You could win the lottery or everyone in your family could die and you feel exactly the same. That was one explanation I heard once. It feels exactly the same. Mm. There's just, there's no hope. One of the worst feelings of depression is when you can't feel any pleasure and people don't understand what that's it's going don't Numbness. Even, yeah. It's not even numbness. It's a lack of anything. And when you can look at your family and the people you love more than anything in the world and not feel anything, that's, mm. you're getting to the point where you're getting ready to go. Mm. Because what's the point of living then? We don't realize how much pleasure drives us until we literally can't feel pleasure in anything we do. And mm. that's pretty torturous. So it yeah. is what it is. But as I say, we all... In the carnival of life, we all get to ride the carousel. We just have different rides. Depression's my ride. Everybody's got a ride. And having worked with people all this time, I don't care how well put together you seem on the outside, we all have something. Yeah. How you deal with your thing. That's it. It's part of your journey. That's it. Yeah, I really appreciate a few different points of acknowledgement. One is that vivid imagery of someone randomly take you out and just started torture you and randomly you drop you back in. That is a viv visceral. I don't know what that is. Never been kidnapped before. And I hope I never experienced that. I have an idea. Holy shit. And then from that space, that's an extreme forcing function. How do you build yourself back up versus being a victim of it? Because at that point, the psychological safety is gone. We're like, oh my God, this yeah. is just my life. I can either easily be a victim or here are some of the ways I can build up my practices and cultivate this. So that way I can remain resilient, strong. For me, man, it's part of this is everything's a learning mm -hmm. and it's my choice. And like I was saying, because of what I experienced as a kid, I was fascinated with the mind and it's my curse. And yet it made me study the things I did and then go to hypnotherapy school and then learn NLP and then do all those things and help people all around the world and different continents and different countries and see signs of it in my own son and my friends and then say, okay, here's what you need to talk to this person or read this and find out about yourself. And, and this is what you're going through. Cause nobody told me, I didn't know until I was in my twenties and I figured it out for myself in college. Oh, that's what I, that thing called depression. So because of that, I had to do all of it. And I wouldn't be me without it. And so really your greatest curse. And by the way, if I say, what's your curse, CK, you have a curse. We all have a curse. We all just, your brain goes, yeah, that thing, right? If I say it to everyone that's listening, what's your curse? You thought of something, right? For me, depression's my curse. Mm. But at the same time, I wouldn't be the person I am. I wouldn't have made the changes. I wouldn't learn the things. I wouldn't help the people. So your greatest curse really can be your greatest gift. Yep. It's what you learn by dealing with it. And I live that philosophy. What can I learn from this? Because if I didn't, I come from the East Coast and I have a certain way of talking and I'm trying to keep my language in an appropriate manner. But on this it, podcast, I don't need to. Filters, filter free, man. All right. You're walking down the street and you get a beat down, right? Randomly in life. That happens. Like I say, you're walking around a corner, somebody's got a big wet sack full of meat and just go whap right in your face. And what the fuck just happened? Yeah. I got some choices if I get a beat down by life. I can either learn from it or I just got a beat down for nothing. And yeah. if I'm going to get my butt kicked, 
I say I am being able to censor. I'm going to get my my butt kicked. I am going to learn something because otherwise I just gave it away for free and I don't like getting my ass kicked. So when life does it, damn it, I'm going to make something out of it. I don't think that the world or the universe or God, however you want to define it, puts it there for you to learn from. I think it happens and you got a choice. Do I learn or don't I learn? And we always have that choice. So whatever your curse is, whatever anyone who's listening's curse is, my invitation to you is to ask yourself, how do I make it my gift? How do, how does dealing with this thing make me stronger? What do I need to learn? So just like you were saying, you have a choice. It's the set mindset of, oh my God, I have this and that's it. I'm not going to change. And then there's the growth mindset that says, yeah, I will use this as a platform to move forward. Yeah. Depression, and we talked about how you define yourself. And we'll talk a little bit more. We'll get a little more in depth in this. But defining yourself as the emotional mind, according to my understanding, it's your identity. And you choose that identity. And so am I somebody with a, a mental illness that may one day kill him? Or am I somebody, uh, and therefore weak and damaged? Or am I somebody who's able to go through a living hell in my brain and still come out standing so i feel because of depression vaguely superior to a lot of people and i've talked to people and we belong to an organization with a lot of people that are very rich and, and very well professionals and great at what they do and highly successful multiple businesses legends in their industry and i went and did a talk in front of them and i just mentioned to them in passing you know what none of you fuckers really impressed me and there was silence because everyone who gets in front of that group is the first thing they say is it's such an honor to be in front of all you people millionaires billionaires blah 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 and i said i don't care how much you made i don't care what you've done live for seven days in my seven-year-old brain and don't jump in front of that traffic and then you have my respect because then i think you're tough until then i think I'm superior to everybody. And I want everyone to get that. Whatever you're dealing with, it's what makes you strong. And if you've had a horrible life, if you've had horrible trauma, if you've been abused, if you have brain chemistry issues, whatever it is, the fact that you're still standing makes you strong and not everyone else, because this is a big part of my work is teaching people how they're strong, where they think they're weak, where they are anxious, fearful, nervous about doing things because they don't understand their value because no one ever helped them have that value. To give them that understanding, that confidence and say, as I am enough. And as I am, by the way, I've got some things that you wish you could do and be because of what I've been through. So I am one tough motherfucker, man. I love that. Like I said, dude, this shit may kill me one day. Honestly, not I'm, today. Right. Not today. It's not the freaking day, not dude. Today. I'm very honest. It almost sounds like a movie dialogue, really. So I really appreciate the way you see. So let me actually just highlight a few points. Mm -hmm. On this podcast, we say a lot is your biggest wounds is the source of your biggest superpower. Yep. So I love that you literally just reinforced what we said. Mm -hmm. And also the fact that you also did a reframe right? Which on this podcast, we say a lot as well. Whatever you think your biggest weaknesses or wounds are turning around, it could be, or it is your biggest superpower. So case in point, like I would just make it personal. For a long time, I thought my insatiable curiosity was a burden because at some point when I was younger, my parents, my teacher said to me, 
be quiet, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> Too many questions. <laughs> and then it wasn't until someone said, Hey, actually is an asset. And then it was like, what? Like a whole, my whole world shifted. Reframe. It is, it is yeah. a huge asset. You're right. And who would I be as a podcaster, if not my curiosity about human beings and their life stories? There's so many people that have been told not to be something or that what they are is bad. And that comes down to identity. We learn that when we're young, we don't question it. And then we build a worldview around it. And an example that I can give you is people with ADD, you know, or ADHD. When you are young in school, that is a very negative thing. You're supposed to be regimented. Don't do this. Don't do that. My son's literally gifted as a genius, but he was very hyper as a kid. And the report I got from him and for him in second grade was he's really intelligent. He answers questions on a depth that I haven't seen any child his age answer. And I knew his sense of humor because I have a background and when I was younger as a comic was far beyond somebody his age. I knew he was intelligent and none of them understood it because they saw it as a deficit. He wasn't able to sit still. The big report he got was he fidgets his foot and that distracts the other children. And I looked in there and I said, so wait, you're telling me that he can answer questions on a deeper level, but you're concerned that he fidgets his foot. And I was not a happy camper at that moment. And then you fast forward to look at entrepreneurs, look at successful entrepreneurs, look at how many of them define themselves as having ADD. It's actually a plus for many people. If you learn to harness that power of hyper-focus and the ability to you know, go through so many things at once and the excitement, all those things can be pluses. It's just, how do you learn to use it? And one of the differences between me, and I think, the way people are classically trained psychologists and, and uh, psychiatrists, and there's numerous methods of helping people. And all of them have their strong points and their weak points. I think one of the weak points of many schools of psychology was that it was looking at people as damaged and classifying them. I am a person with clinical depression, and that's the box that I would be in. But that's not the whole me. It doesn't cover the strength of it. It's all about the weakness. I have this symptom, this symptom, this symptom. So we look at people as a group of symptomologies to be fixed mm -hmm. rather than as an individual to be honored and enhanced and say, okay, where is it adaptive? We talked about that. Where is it adaptive? Where is it maladaptive? That's the only question. Is it adaptive? Is it maladaptive? It's almost as if certain schools of psychology, it's about making you not be weird. Just be want to normalize you somehow. Yeah, let's be normalized. You're a DSM, blah, 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 blah. And that's I've had arguments with friends that are psychoanalysts and stuff where I've said them, we're not a collection of symptoms. We're we're human experience. But in saying that, I have my own understanding, the formula by which we differentiate and and build our reality. But the difference being it's not about are you broken? Or are you fixed? It's about you doing this. It's, is it adaptive? If not, try shifting the formula. That's it. And then see what happens. There's no value judgment. You're not broken. You just need to change some stuff or you wouldn't be talking to me. That's mm -hmm. how I greet people. I, I really appreciate you saying that. So these days, I actually study a lot of Tao Te Ching and I Ching, more of like spiritual texts from China. Mm -hmm. 
because you know that's my heritage. So I want to yeah. understand that a little bit more. And a huge part of when it comes down to it, it basically is you said it beautifully, but in, in your own way, it's adaptive versus maladaptive. If you mm -hmm. are going against nature, a la maladaptive, or your internal nature, whatever it is, mm -hmm. your subjective reality, then stop doing it. <laughs> right? Change the formula. Change the formula. If you're going with it, going with flow, and you know, there's a lot of different various language to describe essentially the same thing, being adaptive, your subject to reality as well as your uh, external reality, then keep going. So it's essentially, right. I love that you, you summarize the wisdom of to adaptive to maladaptive. That's it. The Tao and all of that, they're just basically ripping me off. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> they just said it 2000 years sooner, but they were totally quoting me. There is no, you know, one right way and no. all teachings. It's like the 10,000 names for God. Like I said, that's right. Uh, we're all going towards the same center. And if you look at my methodology, if you look at other methodologies, you'll see there's similarities. I didn't reinvent anything. I just figured out the connection that makes things work and change work in a way that I can explain to other people that aren't wonky head people like us that love to talk details and just say, Hey, I, I need a simple understanding. That's right. I don't need all of that. The way I talk about what I do is if we're going to talk about a martial art, so we're going to take the Eastern thing. So any martial art has this beautiful history and all bits of it. And part of the martial arts is self-defense, but it's not all the martial arts. There's a whole bunch of art to it. Anyone who's ever done a martial art realizes there's much more to it than just learning how to defend yourself. Having said that's important, part of most martial arts. You can learn the whole art form of hypnotherapy and neurolinguistic programming and whatever. Actually, else. if you don't mind, just stop mm -hmm. on that point a bit. Yep. Are there distinctions between hypnosis and neurolinguistic programming? And yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll get to that. Okay. okay, thank you. So you can learn all of the art form or you can just learn self-defense. And this to me is teaching someone self-defense. There's 80,000 ways to form a hand and do this where you hit somebody and all of that. Or you can just teach someone to punch someone in the throat. And that pretty much will do the job. So what I do is I take the basic 20% of what I know that gets me 80% of the results with everyone. And I teach people that. And I don't get into the deeper stuff unless I need to for them. That person needs that. But again, 80% of my results is done with very few tools. But I'm really good at them. Just a martial artist will tell you, I know seven different moves, but I am real good at them. I am aware of a thousand and I can do them, but put me in a self-defense I'm going to use these seven moves almost everywhere. That's yeah. what I'm doing. Um, I appreciate that. Bruce Lee came to my. Yeah, this is my Jeet Kune Do. This yeah, is... yeah. He invented Jeet Kune Do. Yeah. Exactly. I actually studied Jeet Kune Do with Dan and Asanto's student a long time. I'm a horrible martial artist, but I loved it. But it's that part that says, take what is useful and disregard the rest and build it. Because part of what I do with people as a hypnotherapist involves humor, involves my personality, involves my uh, total openness about my history, which most people who are in therapeutic situations don't do. I'm informed by my experience. So that's my Jeet Kune Do. Everything that's happened to me informs me. And I'm going to tell you about it if it helps you. I'm not going to hold it back. I'm also going to look at 
where are my strengths? I'm delightful. I'm engaging. I'm funny as fuck. I can do all those things. I know that because I was a comic when I was in my twenties, but I also know that because it's, I'm very good at making people at ease. Part of my appeal, my martial art, my, if I was going to say as a therapist, part of the thing that I've helped other therapists to break from, because I have people that come to me to learn this that are therapists who literally say, I can't tell anyone I'm learning this because it's not therapy as defined by my organization, but it always helps them improve. Just like Jeet Kune Do would take a Taekwondo person and help them learn other aspects so that they could be a more complete martial artist. And one of the things I find is I'm helping them be themselves, just like I help my clients. I'm helping them say, hey, just be unapologetically you. That's what I do. I'm unapologetically me. And I want to teach everyone else to be that. That's my goal in life. When you talked about the, the martial arts, the NLP versus hypnosis, how it goes is hypnotherapy, it's an ancient understanding. They were doing sleep temples in ancient Rome and Greece. Trance experience has been codified over time by different hypnotherapists. And one of the foremost hypnotherapists of our time or any other time was a man named Milton Erickson. And what happened was these two men, Endler and Grinder, went to study with him and Virginia Satira was a family therapist and Fritz Perls was another therapist. And that they figured out how they got their results. Erickson said, they can tell you better how I do what I do than I can because I just do what I do. Practitioner is more of a theorist. They figured out the nuts and bolts. They went, here's what. So they modeled. NLP is about modeling successful understandings of the world. They modeled how that hypnotherapist did that. And then they taught other therapists. If you do these things, you tend to move towards what this guy is doing, what this woman's doing. And so it's built into a, a whole bunch of understandings, but basically it's about modeling human excellence. Hypnotherapy is one of the things they modeled. And so there's a lot of similarities, a lot of crossover. Any good NLP person is doing hypnosis in my mind because it reaches a certain point where they're in trance. And once you're in trance, which is an internally focused state, not externally focused awareness, as most people define it for therapy, you're in trance. It's just a different name. Think about it all as just variations. It's all martial arts to me. I hate the only problem martial arts people get that connotation of combative and it's not about that. It's the self-awareness. Having said that, and you'll get this. I don't know if you're old enough to really get it, though. In the 70s, when Bruce Lee was a big thing, there was a thing where if I went to this school and you went to that school, my school's better. I do White Crane. I do Praying Mantis, and that's really going to kick butt on White Crane. And then we found mixed martial arts proved that some things worked and some things didn't in those situations. And then they came up with a, a general kind of thing that had a lot less techniques but they were really effective for that combat. Sound familiar? So with that understanding, there's a lot of things. And I, hypnosis has changed a lot because of the internet. When I learned it, it was, there was literally 50 pages and I'm talking no pictures, anything on the internet having to do with hypnosis. And I know it because I went on web crawler, which was the only thing you could get on the net, I believe back then to search things. And read all 50 pages and printed them out. And that was at 50 pages. I don't mean website pages of material that you could read. That was where I was when I started. Now you can literally watch hypnosis all day, all night, never run out of material just on YouTube. Now, is it all good? Is it all well done? No, 
when I'm teaching hypnotherapists, I teach them how to figure out what the right methodology is so they can look at somebody and say, okay, that technique, mm, this one, oh, that's right on. But back then it was my school of hypnosis is better than your school of hypnosis. It wasn't even my form of therapy. And what I used to say is it's my Kung Fu stronger than your Kung Fu. Yep. But yeah. now we're all mixed martial artists. And if you come to me with a different system, my first thought is, what can I learn from this? What can I lift? I say it a lot. What can I lift from what you're doing? I'll totally lift it because if it's effective, I'm going to use it. Yeah. And it's people at. And that's another part of why I came up with this. It was about what have I noticed? It may not be what I was classically taught, but it's my understandings. It's yeah. little licks I've picked up. So let me... Let me tell you about this, this real quick and then we can- Yeah, please. Let's get into the mental model. Since um, we're going to do video as well as audio, so right. for those people who are not watching this, maybe you can visually describe what we're looking at. All right. So behind me, I have a, what looks like a diamond and I call it the life formula method. It's really life's secret formula. It is how we create meaning in anything and therefore where behavior comes from. And so if you were to look at it, you'd see a diamond and on the outside of the diamond shape is what's called external reality. It happens to all of us. We're in the same room. We're having the same experience, but then there's internal reality that's inside that diamond shape. And that's the meaning subjective reality that I make out of it that you make. And it's different for everyone. Same outside circumstances. We create our own meaning. And that was my lesson when I was a kid. So there's four points to a diamond. And so on the left point of that diamond, you'd see, what's called body on the right point, you'd see perceptions on the top point, you'd see logical mind. And on the bottom point, you'd see emotional mind. And there's only four parts to what I teach. And it's those four parts. Your body is, what do you feel like? Your perception is, what are you focused on? The shortcut to your logical mind, it's your self dialogue and your emotional mind. Well, that's your deep beliefs. That's your emotions around any experience. You take those four things, that creates a formula. You change any part of that formula, the whole formula changes. So I'll give you an example. Somebody is told they're going to be on stage and they're going to hand me a pen and I've got to talk about a pen for 10 minutes, make it entertaining. We have 300 people in the next room. Go. Well, for the average person, studies have shown that's almost as scary as death itself, even more to some people. I'm going to be in front of people and I got to talk and I don't even know what I'm talking about. But at 25, I was a stand-up comic. And then I did stage hypnosis for years. And then I've talked in front of loads and loads of crowds of people in the hundreds. So for me, it's a day at the beach. I enjoy doing it. I get a different meaning. You tell me that. And I'm saying, yeah, that's going to be great. I'm going to have a great time. Why? Because I do different things with my body my focus, my logical mind, my self-talk, and I have different beliefs around that experience. And therefore I get excited where someone else gets frightened. So how does somebody get stage fright? If you want to die on stage, here's how you do it. Somebody says, you're going to get on stage and logical mind, that's self-talk. Usually when that happens, somebody who doesn't like getting on stage, usually uh, expletives come out, something like, oh, fuck, oh, shit. It's funny how even the people who are the straightest sounding human beings, when I really get inside their heads, they have the same robust conversations as I have on the outside. So we tend to, in crisis, say something like that. Oh, God. Oh, shit. Oh, God. I got to get on stage. So that's the first thing we're doing. We're saying it. And we're literally saying it in that terminology in our own mind. Next thing, body. What happens? 
they tend to tighten up. Their shoulders go up like they're going to get attacked. They start breathing in their upper chest. Their throat gets tight. You can literally hear it. Their blood rate goes up. All the things that put you in fight or flight. Perceptions, what they're focused on. They're probably getting a picture of all these people staring at them with their arms crossed. Look at them. What are you even talking about? And they're seeing it through their eyes as if they're experiencing, they're rehearsing feeling crappy. And then we're getting to beliefs and a belief that you might have been gifted as a youth is, hey, CK, nobody wants to hear what you say. Mm. So why are you the one talking? How important do you think you are? Or in our family, we're not, that's what entertainers do. We don't do that. We're doctors or whatever message you got, you mm -hmm. built because the emotional mind we'll get into a little later was built as a child. All right. But the meaning that you get about who you are, what's appropriate, all these things will be part of this. And the meaning you'll probably get is I'm not a speaker. That's not part of my identity. No one wants to hear what I have to say. They're all going to notice that my clothes suck or, I'm, or I have a bad haircut or whatever. It's all going to go around in a loop. That's going to make me more tense. I'm going to have more robust conversation. I'm going to see these people even bigger, larger, more of them saying you suck or whatever your brain wants to focus on and pretend is real you tell me i'm gonna get on stage here's what i say yeah in my head i get excited in fact i get so excited because excitement and anxiety feel the same physically i get so excited that i have to chill myself out because i don't want to burn the adrenaline before i get on stage because i am ready to go because i have in my mind i'm focused on all the experiences i've ever had and i'm watching ken killing it in front of people, whether it's making them laugh, whether it's teaching them, whether it's doing a hypnosis show, whether it's taking a group through hypnosis. And then I step into the afterwards where people have walked up to me years later and said, I saw you four years ago. You did a talk. I just wanted to tell you it changed my life. That's what I see when you tell me I'm going to stage. Who, whose life am I changing right now is another thing I might say to myself. Another thing I might say is cha-ching because frankly, I have a great conversation when I get on stage. I usually end up making money from it. So that's not bad either. So all these meanings are there for me. But one of the real meanings is at my basis, I'm an entertainer. And when I'm on stage, I'm bulletproof. I've been on stage with fever. I've been on stage with a spider bite. It should have been in the emergency room. I've been on stage when people started fighting in the crowd. I've been on stage when a biker wanted to kick my ass. This is back when I was a comic. I've been on stage with someone winged a beer at me and I winged one back. This is again, when I was a comic, I don't do that now. But I've had people in the audience literally have to have the EMTs come and take them out while I'm trying to entertain a crowd. So that experience means I'm bulletproof on stage, man. You can't nothing. In fact, I'm stronger on stage than off because I am larger than life. Take that belief system, take that whole formula. And I feel great. Mm. My subjective reality is this is going to be wonderful. The person who's the civilian who doesn't do this for a living and doesn't know about these things and do it. They're in abject terror because their formula leads them there. Their meaning they make of it is different. So it's going to translate, by the way, when you're on stage. Yeah. By the way, when you're in flow, here's a funny thing. We don't tend to talk to ourselves. It's one, and when you're in trance, we don't tend to talk to ourselves. We don't tend to have that internal dialogue. So I'm going to get a little more into all the pieces. The body piece, it's what do you feel? is the shortcut, but it's all the things that you can feel and how it's affected. One, brain chemistry, all right? Two, are you on drugs? Are you tired? Do you have allergies? All right, those are all things that will affect how you feel. What's your posture? How are you breathing? That's gonna affect how you feel. Are you healthy? Are you eating right? That's all gonna affect how you feel. And that's all going to color some things and be part of your formula. Mm. Two, 
perceptions, focus. What are you focused on and how are you focusing? In any situation, there's different things you can focus on. Anthony Robbins and many people use the metaphor of the room with a flashlight you're, or Anthony Robbins talks about it. You're at a party with a camera and you're looking at this part of the party and it's going and everyone's having a good time, but you're looking at this part of the camera. And if you just film this part, you're seeing the guy sitting by himself looking really bored. Which party are you at? It's the same party. It's what are you focused on? Right? Mm. Also, how you focus, because there's a lot of variations. You can play with what your perceptions do. You can change things. People think the way I imagine things is just the way I imagine things. No, you can imagine them all different ways. And we're always imagining. We just think it's real because the emotional mind doesn't know the difference. You imagine something lushly enough, it's real to you. So there's variations on how you can focus on things you can do. NLP talks a lot about that, submodalities and such. The logical mind, I call it that facetiously because it's not really logical. It's just there to justify what the emotional mind has decided. And the emotional mind, and that's the bottom of the diamond if you're not watching, that's what really affects the base of everything. The emotional mind is something that was created in your childhood. It is not logical. It is not linear at all. The logical mind just exists to justify what the emotional mind. You buy with emotion, you justify with logic. My metaphor would be, we're all little kids. That's the emotional mind in big kid bodies using big kid words. That's the logical mind to impress the other little kids in big kid bodies. But when we get down to it, we're all little kids. If you're listening to this and you can get that understanding of that we, you, me, everybody, no matter how intelligent we can sound, no matter how much we're good at our subject, no matter how skilled we are, just a bunch of little kids and big kid bodies. And we're all working out childhood. That's it. The logical mind tends to fool us because we're talking in our head and that's the part of us that can be really well modulated. So the difference between the logical and emotional mind is someone will come to me and they'll say, Ken, I'm feeling anxious and i'm lacking a little confidence you know say it like that like a grown-up and i'm a titan of my industry but uh right now they're downsizing i think i'm probably going to lose my position and uh well of course my wife hasn't talked to me in three years and she's divorcing me and my kids they don't even speak to me and also dsm my psychologist and so i've said i've you know got this issue with what's dsm again Yes, is the it's the manual by which they figure out how you're fucked up. <laughs> it's the, I see. It's I have no idea problems. what that is. Okay. So it's the it's how psychiatrists will define somebody who has depression or an anxiety disorder. They'll say it has all these aspects to it. And the DSM four was the fourth version. I think it might even be DSM five by now. It's what a lot of diagnostic and statistical manual. Is that right? Right. Okay. Right. The problem with the DSM is if you looked at the DSM in the 1960s, gay people were considered mentally ill. So evidently some things they got wrong and then they update it. And that makes me wonder how many things did they get wrong in this edition? Because yeah. again, it's kind of society's judgment on what is normal. So they'll say all these things to me and it'll sound really reasonable and I'll listen because I want to be respectful, but I'm listening for something else. I'm waiting until they get to the moment where they just stop putting up the false front, where somebody goes from saying that well-modulated thing and almost looking at me like, so what are you going to do? These are all the reasons I'm screwed up. And they almost feel proud. And then they, they stop and they say, you know what it's really like? It's, it's like I'm a used tissue. I'm going to use toilet paper. And they don't even flush me down the toilet. They just, I'm in the wind. 
that's how little I mean to these people. Mm. And that's not logical. Mm. And that's not real. You're not really toilet paper. Mm. But when I say it, I've yet to have somebody not look at me and not go, because we felt that way. The emotional mind does not communicate in logical patterns. It says things in metaphor. That's a metaphor. Metaphor is one of the easiest ways to communicate with the unconscious mind if you're not a hypnotherapist. Listen for people's metaphors and realize that there's a little child in there. That's the biggest part of what I teach civilians on the emotional mind. So you have four different ways of changing a formula. Change any part, the formula must change. So let me give you an example of that. All right. The example would be if I gave you adrenaline and I didn't tell you, you'd have some things happen. So yeah, first yeah. thing that happened, your heart rate would go up. Mm your blood pressure would go up, you'd start sweating, you'd breathe faster. Physical things would be changing. Mm -hmm. You're gonna try and have a logical meaning for that. And if you're my age and you haven't been working out for a while and you're eating too much ice cream, you're gonna say something like, am I having a heart attack? Yeah. And therefore your perceptions are gonna focus on every body sensation that indicates I'm having a heart attack, every heartbeat. Is it faster? Is it slower? Is it more? Do I feel like tearing in my chest? And guess what? If you focus on something long enough, you can imagine a lot of things. When that's happening, you're going to bring up beliefs that you have about your own mortality. And it might be hearts, heart attacks run in our family. My uncle Bob died of a heart attack when he was younger than me. Or My you know, classmates of the same age. So my, so. yeah. yeah, exactly. Or even more arcane deeply embedded. Hey, you know what? When I was seven, my mom said, if you keep eating ice cream like that, one day you're going to mm -hmm. die of a heart attack. And that's there embedded in my unconscious mind. It's there. Mm -hmm. That belief is there and I'm going to bring it up and it's going to go to the identity. It says, I'm not a healthy guy. I'm in my fifties. Uh, this is probably it. I'm having a damn heart attack. What's going to happen then? My heart rate's going to go. My body's going to respond. I'm going to have a more robust conversation as I call it in my mind. I'm going to focus even more. It's going yeah. to go around and around. So what do I do to get you out of that? I can do one of four things. I can change the body, the focus, what you say to yourself, logically, or I can change the deeper meaning that you're putting to it. So I could give you anti-adrenaline, not tell you a thing. And then your heart rate chills out. And eventually you stop saying, I'm having a heart attack. And you say something like, whew, I must've just had a panic attack. You give it a meaning. Mm. You stop monitoring every heartbeat you have and you get back to focusing on whatever the heck you're focused on in your normal life. And you get to a belief system that says, wait, either I dodged a bullet, I'm lucky, or maybe I'll live forever. Or you know, maybe your belief shifts slightly and you go, you know what? Eh, maybe less ice cream. That was a bad experience. But regardless, that one shift shifts the formula and then you're calm. You're not having a heart attack. I could do that. I could tell you, hey, CK, I, I slipped you adrenaline and I didn't tell you. And you'd think, oh, you scamp. You drugged me. And when you got done thinking about all the things you're going to do to get back at me, you'd say, hey, I guess I'm not having a heart attack. Now, your heart would still be tripping. You still got the adrenaline. But now you have a meaning that makes you feel good. I'm not. This idiot gave me adrenaline. And therefore, again, your focus might be like, Oh, Ken, <laughs> when it comes around, I've got some fun stuff to do to you. Or it might just be, oh, I'm relieved and let me get back on with my day. Or for some of us, maybe like, how interesting. I guess this is what a heart attack feels like. Let me explore it. it does depends on the meaning you give it. And the meaning again will shift. The meaning will be maybe, hey, don't trust Ken too much when he gives you something. <laughs> maybe that would be the meaning, or I shouldn't trust friends. But the meaning of I'm having a heart attack would shift. That's another yeah. way.
I could shift your focus. And one of the things I tell people is when in doubt, fake a seizure. And what I mean by that is if I fake a seizure, pretty much 99% out of 100 things that you could be thinking about suddenly become less important. You will focus on me now. You will focus on, oh my God, is this guy foaming at the mouth? What's going on now? Obviously, I'm not saying if you have a, I had a friend die from epilepsy, so I'm taking it very seriously, but I'm saying it from the point of if you do something drastically different and you change someone's focus immediately, their belief system isn't kicked in anymore about mortality. Their belief system about I'm here to help people and I've got to help someone in need and that guy's really in need. I might have my heart tripping, but this guy's on the floor rolling around. I'll still have this adrenaline stuff, but I'll give a different meaning to it because now I'm doing this to help them. Oh my God, I better call an ambulance. I'll be focused on helping you now. Or we could change the deep beliefs. We could do therapy about it. We could get you past the part that, you know, you, yeah, it runs in your family, but guess what? Your uncle Bob was a mar by a marriage. And your identity is you're, you're a guy who's been living in a world in which we have things that they didn't have 30 years ago. So that part of your identity. And by the way, you're a survivor. You've survived all of that. It's a big one with me bringing up all the times you survived and then projecting it into the future of that you'll survive this. Whatever change we want to bring, we bring it on a deep level. Therefore, when your heart starts tripping out, you just go, how strange my heart's tripping out. Let's get yeah. on my day. Change any one part of that formula and everything shifts. That's why it's a formula. I see. So let's actually, because you merge the self scenario as well as the facilitator scenario together. So let's actually unpack that. Bring up the person who is petrified of about to go into give a public speech as mm -hmm. an example. Let's say if they're by themselves, they know your formula. What like tactically, what would you recommend to do as a way to disrupt the downward spiral of being freaked out about being nervous about going well, we could take it any different way, but I'll give you an example based on a friend of mine that is a, a speaker and a very successful speaker and very talented at being a speaker. And he told me, Hey, one day I was at a conference because I'm always asking people, where's your challenges? So one day I was at a conference and I was going to go up and I knew I was going to do a good job. I'm great in front of a crowd. And he said, but then I realized that the two guys that were on before me were from Harvard. They were, they had studied at Harvard and I never studied at an Ivy league school. And I always felt a little less than, and I felt like if they're going to be from Harvard and they're talking, what, what can I add to it? These people are going to know. So the formula he got into was let's focus on the fact that they're on Harvard. Let's say to myself something like, they must know more than me. They're more important or people are more interested. Let's take it to the level of identity that says, because I didn't go to an Ivy League school, someone who did is superior to me. Mm -hmm. And therefore, let's get nervous when I don't usually get nervous in front of a crowd because that's what they're like. It was weird. I was getting flop sweat and, I'm, and, I, and I, I couldn't understand it. And I said, let me give you a different formula next time you're in front of those people. One, how about this? We'll start with focus. How about you focus on seeing all the times and watching that guy, literally watching yourself as if you're watching another person objectively, because we step out of ourselves, we step out of our emotions. Watch that guy killing it over the years. Mm. I said, hey, by the way, I've had people tell me I changed their lives years after seeing me on stage. Have you had that? He goes, oh, yeah. I go, what if you focused on that? And all the times people have said it and see them in front of you, the people literally cried and said, my God, that talk that you gave three years, I just, something shifted in me. And already he was starting to sit up straighter. Mm -hmm. I said, how about this? Why don't we take the belief that says I am a speaker and I am one of the best there is. 
because you know you're one of the best there is. How about we go with the belief that says, I am someone who adds value to every group I talk to. How about we do that? How about we work that belief a little bit? How about we work the belief that says, book learning ain't everything because talent has something to do with being on stage, okay? Mm -hmm. I said, how about we take that anxiety and flop sweat and instead make it more of a kind of, and if you were watching me, you'd say, I can, I'm starting to rock, like I'm getting my, my energy up. Make it in more of that excitement because we give meaning to body sensations. Make it excitement or... How about if we just breathe? And I showed him a quick breathing technique and how to drop his shoulders and take himself out of fight or flight. And the final piece, the piece that got him just smiling. And I said, right before you go on stage, you're going to say something to yourself. And he goes, what's that? And I said, you're going to say, fuck Harvard. <laughs> and every time he gets, every time I say it to him, he's Harvard. and he just sat up straighter and he was just like, yeah, man, fuck Harvard. <laughs> and it all, that formula shifted. And now when he thinks about if I'm going to follow somebody from an Ivy League university, he gets a grin on his face because he looks at me, he goes, fuck Harvard. Yeah. Because yeah. Harvard doesn't teach you to be a great speaker. Being a great speaker teaches you to be a great speaker. So I shifted his formula and it happened. I can do it real quick. I do the take apart real quick with people and do a little adjustment. That's the easiest part for me because... Mm -hmm. I'm really familiar with this mm. in doing therapeutic things with other people and teaching them a deeper level of understanding. That's where the rubber meets the road. So I gave them that the test is, Hey, when you think about it, are you still anxious? Nope. I'm really excited. I want to, I basically want to fuck up those Harvard boys and show them. Yeah. yeah who's college and I'm going to kick their ass. Whatever is meaning it changed quite a bit for him. Yeah. And then the part about saying, okay, what, where did these beliefs come from? Maybe we need to shift some of that. Maybe you were told you were less than. Maybe there's a thing that's causing you and the same thing that's causing you not to value yourself on stage, even though it's so obvious that you have value is causing you not to value yourself enough in a relationship to create boundaries that are right for you, to have requirements for how you get treated. This is what runs the show, the emotional mind, the beliefs that you were given and they're gifts that you were given, whether they're good gifts or not. They were adaptive when you were a kid, by the way. When you were taught something as a child, you were taught it by the people that were like the gods, the adults, the ones who fed you and kept you safe. And therefore, you had to do it because these are the people that keep me safe. And if they tell me in my family, shut up and sit down, you're a kid, a part of me is going to take in. Maybe I need to shut up and sit down all the time. Yeah. Some people never get the update right? <laughs> no longer the kid. And some people, most people never examine the belief itself and say, you know what? I don't think that was right to say to a kid. That kid was great. He had energy. He was enthusiastic. Maybe that parent was going through some stress. Yeah. And you don't examine the beliefs and change them. They don't get the update. So when we get into the emotional mind part, that's where the deeper change happens. But the cool thing about the formula is I can teach you simple tools to help change parts of it. I can yeah. teach you how to breathe, calm yourself, take you out of fight or flight, the posture to have to feel more confident. I can teach you some very simple ways to change your focus and what to focus on and how you focus to take you out of the emotional state into a more objective state. I can show you how to change how you talk to yourself. I can teach yeah. you to cheat on that logical level part because the one thing you don't try and do is out logic yourself. You ever have that argument in your mind? You can't win an argument in your mind. You can't sit there and logic it out. I should do this. I don't know. Maybe I should do this. It's like playing chess with yourself, right?
you don't directly try logic against logic. There's ways to play the game around it and not be linear. And then by doing those three things, you're going to shift emotionally. If you yeah. just did those three things, you're going to shift emotionally. But if I'm working with you on shifting those emotions at the same time, it's much more powerful. And that's why this formula was born as a hypnotherapist. I would work with the emotional mind. Right. And yeah. there's a little crossover between emotional mind, uh, logical mind, and what hypnotherapists call the conscious and the unconscious. But yep. it's not exactly. They're all paradigms. None of them really exist. It's just ways of understanding concepts. And as a hypnotherapist, it was all about the emotional mind. Because if we change that on a deep yep. level, then they're going to talk to themselves differently. They're going to focus differently. Their body's going to do different things. What I realized is why not teach people tools and use it all together synergistically. No, I, I really appreciate the way you articulate it. And I really like the visual because mm -hmm. you put those three on top mm -hmm. and you can literally just tactically do those things and shift your, the symptoms right away. You, know, you right. get immediate payoff. You get some relief. You get, down, you get, get some, some relief, get on stage, thing, you right, learn in the process, like basically get you moving. Mm -hmm. One of the, anyways, I want to get into reciting someone, but then you can work on, get curious about the deeper stuff, the root cause of, mm -hmm. okay, why do I have this belief or why do I have this identity or why well, do what I belief would be better? Cause there's looking at the past and then there's looking towards the future. It might be sometimes I don't even deal with why they got the belief. Although mm -hmm. I like the metaphor of the inner child. It's just another metaphor. The mm -hmm. brain accepts it. Once I say it, people go, oh yeah, I do have a little kid inside me. And they look at themselves differently. We tend to be more forgiving of a child, mm -hmm. whether it's ourselves or someone else. We tend to not be as critical. And when we get into that understanding, it says, well, I am a little kid. It's moving forward. What do I want this little kid to believe? Right, because guess what? You get to parent yourself when you're an adult. You didn't have a choice the first go around. You were given the environment, the messages. You're a grown ass human being now. It's your choice. That's what brings people to me to change. They've decided I don't like what I was given for beliefs and understanding. It's not working for me. I want to change it, but I don't know how. So sometimes we delve into the past. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes it's all about, hey, let's move you to the future. Let's, what beliefs would you want? What beliefs does this person need? And part of the artistry, because there is an art to helping people change, is what I bring to the table as a change worker and my life experience and all the skills I've learned and the parts that I can't even define to you. And part of it is the understanding that says, look, there are certain techniques that I can teach anyone that'll make a dent a huge dent and sometimes will be enough to change right there forever how you move forward in that aspect of your life yeah i really love that so before you go into the I, fundamental identity shift you had talked about the, the body the logical mind the perception what are some of the ways that you can that you advise people to reinforce to exercise that muscle to anchor right using an op term to actually anchor those core beliefs before going to the deeper level fundamental belief so i wouldn't say it's anchoring it's more of using these parts of yourself effectively it's more of learning some techniques that you can use and to go back to that martial arts metaphor it's well where do you hit someone mm -hmm. how do you form a fist 
uh, that's a percussive, all right? That would be one part of a martial art. How do you lock a joint? How do you take someone down? Now we're into the grappling part, right? Mm. Wing Chun, if we're going to get real esoteric, that's close fighting, right? Yeah, yeah. Wando is far fighting. Well, those are two slightly different skill sets, but I probably got three kicks and two ways of punching someone and my favorite way of choking someone out. And I probably would be practicing them a lot. So what's your version? Again, sorry for the combative imagery. This is no more warrior. They're used to the whole idea of you. The whole idea of noble warrior, just for clarification, the whole idea of noble warriors is treating life as a discipline, right? as an art. So we practice continuously the different disciplines, the different skills so that we can actually create a life that we want to have in life. I love it. All right. So let me give you, I'll give you three little tools real quick that you can use. All right. Tool number one is the body and we got to notice the body. And one of the big tells, cause the body trumps anything. As I say, if you can have the best thoughts, you can talk to yourself about you have the wonderful beliefs, be focused on great stuff. But if I put my hands around your neck and I start squeezing, in about two minutes, you got issues. And I don't care what you say to yourself. Just that's it. Body trumps and brain chemistry is what taught me that. It doesn't matter. It reaches a point where nothing else is going to work when I when somebody has clinical depression because they've got to shift the brain chemistry. And then everything will start to shift. Mm. So the body trumps everything. So let's start with the body because when the body is in fight or flight, everything else kicks off. And you got to remember, fight or flight's a good thing. It was designed to help us survive. It was literally, you're a caveman. Over there, there's a rustle in the bushes. I'm a little interested. Uh, now there's a growl. I'm a little concerned. Now there's something with teeth and they're big. They're sticking out like that because it's a saber-toothed tiger and it's starting to come towards me quickly. I got some choices. Do I pick up a stick and fight? Do I run? It's actually fight, flight, or freeze. Or do I freeze in place? Those are the three choices you have. What you don't have is a choice to make a logical understanding of what the best way to understand this animal is as it hurdles towards you and what's the best thing I need to do. Because at that point, you're tiger meat, all right? That person didn't breathe. The one who did that didn't breathe. The one who immediately went to something else, do it, do, do. They survived. It's hardwired into us and it's great. But how many times in your life is a saber-toothed tiger coming at you? How many times in your life is it really an existential threat that you're confronted with? And how many times in your life has it been something that was maybe monetary, relationship-wise, oh, blah, 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 but it wasn't going to kill you. Fight or flight is designed for, it's going to kill you. I'm on a third floor. A tiger comes in, do I jump out the window or do I grab a pen and try and shove it into its eye? Those are my choices. And I don't have time to think about it. And it might not make the right choice because fight or flight's not about thinking deep. It's about thinking fast. Mm -hmm. Actually think you're thinking deep, but studies have shown, Mark Goulston talks about, he's a mutual friend of ours, mm -hmm. psychiatrist, amygdala hijack and the fact that when that happens you think you're thinking deep but studies have shown your higher cortical functions they're not really engaged mm -hmm. you want to quickly get out of pain so body goes into fight or flight a whole formula kicks off around it so why not let's start with the body so one of the things that happens you go on fight or flight shoulders go up why i'm gonna get attacked this is just everyone watch people by the way watch when their shoulders are here and then watch when they relax because it's one of the ways i read people how high is your shoulders compared to when i start talking to you and you calm yourself right so why not drop your shoulders and let your body know you're safe right now? Why not, instead of breathing up here, 
which is the chest, which is intercostal breathing. Why not breathe down in the diaphragm, which is two thirds of your lung capacity, which martial arts taught us. And I learned it from karate a long time before I learned any of this other stuff, how to breathe down to the belly, the tantian, the part two inches below your navel. I use that imagery with people of filling a balloon two inches below your navel. If you breathe down there automatically, you will drop out of fight or flight. Mm. Belly breathing is the quickest way to get out of fight or flight. And there's variations and ways to do it and all the subtleties to it. But if you breathe down in your belly and you drop your shoulders, you're going to start to calm yourself. Another thing I would tell you is this, in that situation, this thing I call the safety protocol. So I'm going to, I'll tell you what it is right now. I have a client look to the right and left. And I ask them, are they safe? And usually with first time client, they'll go, what? And I'll go, are you safe? And they'll go, yeah. And I go, no, no. Are you safe right now? Because I, I never want you to bullshit yourself. I want you to look around you and say, are you safe? Remember, clients come to me, they're anxious, they're nervous, they want confidence, mm-hmm. they're in fight or flight. Mm-hmm. So it's become my specialty, taking people out of fight or flight. Mm-hmm. So they look around and they go, no, you have to understand something. I'm not talking to your logical mind. I'm talking to the little kid part of you. Are you safe right now? Do you need to do anything else? And I've had people go, oh, you know what? I feel better if you had the phone because I do online work exclusively. I feel better if you had my friend's phone number in case something happens. Sure. Then I'll say, do you want me to have someone else's phone number? I've had people go, yeah, there's another phone number in case they're not there. I've had people go through their house three times to make sure all the doors are locked. And I just sit there and I go, sure. And then I say, are you safe? And they'll say, yes. I go, are you sure? Just checking with your feelings. Do you feel safe? Is there anything else you need to do? And when I get a congruent, yes, here's what I'll tell them. If you are safe, close your eyes. And they close their eyes. And I get them to start breathing down in their belly. And I say, if you are safe, then you can tell yourself logically, I am safe. So how about when you breathe in, you are safe. Say it in your own mind. When you exhale, tell yourself, I am safe. Really, it's like setting up a mantra. But what am I doing? I'm distracting that logical mind that's japping away. I'm giving it something else to say while I'm calming the body. Then as a perceptual technique, while they're calm, while they're relaxed, while they're safe, I'll have them imagine stepping out of themselves. Because when we step away from ourselves, and I did not invent dissociating for positive purposes, Mm. uh, Marcus Aurelius uh, actually Mm. wrote about it 2,000 years ago. In Mm. order to be objective, you need to step out and view yourself and the world. So it's a big part of what I do is teaching people to be objective, to step out of themselves, to view. If you were to step out of that person, are they safe? Look around while telling yourself you're safe, while breathing calmly. Once I've done that, almost everyone is calm at that point. Almost everyone is like here. And then I might add some things for the emotional mind. I might get into some suggestions and things to reach out because at that point they're in a receptive state. But I just teach them to do those three things. I call it the safety protocol. And once you learn to do it, it's pretty simple to take yourself from a level of being anxious and nervous and fearful. It's like an eight and take yourself down to a five pretty quick. And as you practice it, you can get better and better at it. Body. Breathe, relax your shoulders, breathe down in your belly. Logical mind, you're safe, so let yourself know you're safe. I am safe, you are safe. And there's variations on how to say it and reasons for those variations. We don't need to get into all the details. Perceptions, let's focus on stepping out of yourself and floating up and seeing that person's safe right there, that they're fine, that where they are right now, nothing's gonna hurt them. And the reason we're doing it is because if you're anxious and nervous, 
and you tell me that you are safe, then I'm going to say either you're a liar or you're stupid. Because if you're safe, why are you anxious and nervous? Because mm. well, the little kid doesn't feel safe. And until the little kid feels safe, it doesn't matter whatever logical reasons they should feel safe, but they're only going to feel safe when they're calm, when they're reminding themselves they're safe, when they're stepping out and observing that they're safe. That's when the little kid says, and the final thing I'll have them do, and this gets to the emotional mind, is they'll say, now, since you're standing next to this person, view them through loving eyes, like you're their best friend. And there's probably something I need to hear right now. Imagine putting your hand on their shoulder and tell them what they need to hear. And then I'll have them step back into themselves and open their eyes. And I'll say, hey, did you get a message from your own mind when you said, I'll tell them what to say. And invariably, they come up with something great. And most times it's along the lines of you are safe. It's all going to work out. You got the skills to get through this. They already knew the answer. They just weren't running a formula that would get them to the answer. So that's emotional mind now. I'm having them talk to that part of themselves, that little kid really, and saying, hey, here's the reality. You're okay. You're not a bad person. You're worthwhile. These are the things that people tend to say. And the emotion that comes up from those simple statements, because it's, again, it's not me giving them a statement. I'm not doing hypnosis at that point to hypnotize them to feel worthwhile. Yet I am doing hypnosis because I'm taking them into a part of their mind and I'm letting them because I'm all about self-efficacy. That's why I want to teach tools. I don't want to be there all the time. I want you to learn the tools so that I can help you and then move forward and help other people. And then hopefully you've changed the point where you are affecting other people too. Mm. I really appreciate this. Thank you for sharing. You walk us through the, the entire thing. So some follow-up questions, right? You got it. So, so say they're at your office, you help them with the, you know, through your facilitation, masterful facilitation. They're not calmer and they allow themselves to hear their subconscious or talk to their subconscious. On the fundamental mm -hmm. level, you're safe. You're worth it. Mm -hmm. You're lovable. You're good enough. Beautiful, simple, profound statements. And in that moment, they're the way of being shifts, right? Mm -hmm. When they drive home, inevitably, circumstances happen, neurotic thoughts start to arise again. And this is a new muscle, right? Yeah. So they're going from unconscious competence or inco unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence to conscious yeah. competence to unconscious competence. Which is mastery. Which is mastery, which is what you're demonstrating. And that, right by now. the way, is taken from NLP. You know, like, oh, is it? Oh, I did not know that. Okay. And I love yeah. using, I use that analogy with people that you get to the point where you're walking the walk. You're mm -hmm. not thinking about it. First, it's clunky. It's conscious. It's clunky. Like you said, you unconsciously incompetent. I don't know it exists. I don't know I can do it. Conscious incompetence. Now you've just told me something. The podcast, I've listened to it. Now I know there's a way that I can change. I don't know how to do it. I'm competent. You practice, you become consciously competent. I can do it, but I have to think while I'm doing it. I'm a little kid. I can get up. I can stand, but I have to just fall and I fall forward. Walking is falling forward and continually catching yourself. But no, try thinking about that when you're walking. You'll probably stumble because you learned that lesson so long ago. Now walking is just, I get up and walk across the room. There's a million micro movements that have to happen for you to get out of a chair. You don't think about any of them. If you did, you'd be like the centipede. The old thing about the 
millipede was walking down and the grasshopper said, how do you do that with all those legs? And that millipede was paralyzed for the rest of his life because he couldn't figure it out. I look at it as, yeah, that's the opportunity to learn. Here's the one thing I miss about doing office work in LA. Because I exclusively before COVID, I had already moved out of the office and I was just doing online because I can reach people around the world. It's LA traffic is horrendous as anyone who lives in LA knows. So there's always going to come a time where a client would show up late. And when they were late, they were anxious. And if they were late and they were texting me, even better. And so first of all, I'd say, don't text while you're driving. But I could tell they were really anxious. And they'd walk in and they're 10 minutes late and they got only so much. <sighs> Dude, I'm so sorry. Traffic was horrible. I'm really sorry. <sighs> and I look at them and go, I am so excited. And they go, why? I go, because you're pretty jangled. And they go, yeah. I go, what do you think? You're at an eight? And they go, yeah, I'm going to bring an eight. And I go, good, bring it down to a four. And I just sit there. And I go, you tell me when you're there because they've learned how to use the tools. So they get to practice the tools. So everything is a learning. So when you go home and those thoughts come up, it's your chance to practice. So I tell them, look, it's never a straight line to change. It's always going to be ups, downs, all arounds. So when those thoughts come up, use the tool. But with hypnosis, what we're also doing is we're changing the unconscious responses. We're changing the emotional mind. And to get a little bit into the hypnosis piece of it, the classical hypnosis understanding, you have a conscious mind, you have an unconscious mind. The conscious mind's that little 10% that you think runs the show, logic, reason, willpower, it doesn't do a thing to change anything. The unconscious mind is where all the skill sets, everything you've ever learned, it's down there someplace, but it's not really accessible to your conscious. And there's a thing between it, a filter called the critical faculty. And that's the part that you filter through. What I hear, and does it agree with what I believe? Not with what is true, but what I believe is true. If it does, it reinforces it. If it doesn't, I tend to reject it. Cognitive dissonance, right? Mm. You see that in the politics of today's world where close friends can start to hate each other because they're convinced, no, your side's bad. No, your side's bad. You hate America. No, you hate America, right? Mm. You both love America. You just have very different ideas of what that means. Mm. And let's try and figure that out so when we go to that place of the unconscious mind that's where we shift things beliefs and change and the example i can give you is this when i was first doing hypnosis 25 years ago I was still exotic back then even in la so if i met somebody and they had done hypnosis i was thrilled i'm learning that oh cool how did it work out for you and i met this guy and he was at that time he was 50 so i don't know how old he is i can do math i guess he's 50, yeah, he's 75 now if he's still around. And he goes, oh, yeah, I did hypnosis. I did about 10 years ago. And I said, oh, cool, what'd you do it for? He goes, quit smoking. And I go, oh, wow, how much did you smoke? And he goes, oh, it was like two packs a day since I was like 10, man. I really was a heavy smoker. And I said, oh, cool, how did it work? And he goes, I don't think it really worked. And I was like, I was crestfallen. Oh, my God, really? I'm studying this. It didn't work. And I go, so you still smoke? And he goes, no, I don't smoke anymore. And I go, really? What happened? He goes, one day it's, I woke up and I realized this just doesn't work for me. And I go, wow, when did that happen? He goes, it's about eight, 10 years ago. His brain didn't even register. And I have that happen. And any hypnotherapist can tell you it's frustrating when someone comes back and they report to you all the stuff that you helped them change has changed. And then they don't make the connection. <laughs> so I thought, on that note, let me ask you this question. From one practitioner to another. Yes. So, so in my mind, transformation, there is a little bit of a lag, right? And then a lot of times, 
it, it, it happens immediately, it feels good immediately, but the behavior change takes a little bit more time mm -hmm. and a little bit more practice, a little bit more mastery for it to stick. So how do you, in your mind, your mental model, how do you navigate the, the lag? Do you, do you feel the ownership and the accomplishment of how you help contribute it to their transformation that they desire? Or like, how do you navigate that? I'm curious. Well, when you're doing classical hypnosis, there is a lag. Some people have the hypno miracle. You did it once. Now everything's shifted. For most people, it's a reinforcement though. The, the shift is happening and it's changing. In other words, I smoked my whole life. It made sense. One day it didn't make sense anymore. And that's all I needed to know. And now I don't smoke anymore. That guy had the hypno miracle. He just didn't really understand it. And his conscious mind didn't want to know. Because deep down, he believed nobody's going to change me. I changed myself. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So one is the understanding that, yeah, it's going to take time. When I work with people, I don't really do by the session anymore. I do by a time frame. We're working together for this much time. I don't really care if I'm working with you for an hour a week, two hours a week, maybe 10 minutes in a week. It doesn't matter. I'm here to get you a result at this amount of time because it's going to take time to reinforce. But one of the big things I do is because I teach them basic tools up front, they have something to practice. So when they get that and they come back and go, oh, I was really anxious. I go, cool. Did you breathe? Mm, I didn't breathe. Okay. I sent you that breathing recording. It trains you on how to do it. It's actually hypnotic. I'm giving you the installation unconsciously of how to do it. That's up to you, man. If you want to do it, you'll get great results. If you don't, we'll slog through it up until maybe I tell you you're not a good match for me. But we can do it either way. And yeah. usually people take the choice of, oh, I'll use it as a learning. So then the next time they're jagged, I'll report. And I always say, hey, what's three good? The first thing I say is give me three wins. And at first it's simple. Pretty quickly, it's the wins have to apply to why you're here and how you show up differently this week. This happened and usually I do this, I did that. So this happened and usually I start yelling at people because I'm freaking out and I've lost control. But this happened, it was, I just, I started breathing mm -hmm. and I found I was calmer. This happened and usually I say to myself, oh, they think they're trying to take advantage of me. They think I'm a punk. But this time I said to myself, oh, I don't care what they think. <laughs> This happened and usually I'm in my body feeling the feelings and getting angry and making these big pictures of somebody just totally taking advantage of me. But instead, this time I stepped away from it all and I realized it's just two people having a discussion. Mm. By the way, I go, when you did that, did you notice that your breathing shifted? And they go, oh yeah. So this is what I'll tell people up front. I'll go, here's what's going to happen. Conscious is clunky. You have to think about it. I'm teaching you some skills. You have to think about it. I'm doing change work with you through hypnotherapy. And changing some deep things that you don't have to think about. They're just changing. It's all working together. All right. Conscious is clunky when you're thinking about it. Eventually you're going to come in and I, it happens every time. And I love when it happens. I go, I'm telling you this right now. Within two, three months, you're going to come in and you're going to forget. I told you this because here's what's going to happen. You're going to go, Ken, I'm going to say, give me three wins. Here's a win. My boss started yelling at me and usually I get really upset, but I got really calm and I was able to say, you know what? That's not appropriate. And I go, wow, what happened? And you'll say something like, I don't know. He's just yelling at me. And it's, I took a deep breath and I said to myself, what's he going to do? I'm good at this. And I just could see that guy is out of control and this guy needs to be calm. I felt calm. And I'll, and I'll say to you, wait, do you mean that person was yelling and you stopped, you breathed? You said something different in your logical mind in a different way. 
you changed the focus to stepping out and seeing it from a different perspective that allowed you. And therefore you felt emotionally calm. And while I'm doing it, I do the little hand point because I always have the formula behind me on the wall. And I get the sheepish grin of, oh yeah, I did do that, didn't I? Because that's when it's real. That's when I'm, that's when I'm excited. I'm not as excited when they say I use this to, and I did that. I'm excited when they forget that they did any of it. Mm, I see. Because that's unconscious competence. That's now they're walking through life differently. Now the winds are, I reacted this way. At first the winds are, I breathed. I did this technique. It helped. It took me from a seven. Eventually, it's no longer about any of that. It's this guy yelled at me and I just was so chill. And that's all on a conscious level. I used to smoke cigarettes and then it stopped making sense. Well, that whole formula changed. But you don't need eventually to be consciously aware of any of it. Just like you're not consciously aware of how you walk across a room or how you get nervous at the moment. You're not consciously aware of that. Eventually, you don't need to be consciously aware of how to be confident. You just are. So you shift it. But knowing that and explaining it up front, it's a process. At first, it's going to be a big wow process because I'm going to teach you tools while I'm doing hypnosis with you and changing some stuff. Eventually, it's going to be mundane. And eventually, I'm going to be the one saying to you, hey, I don't know if you remember two months ago when we first met, but here's this guy. Here's this woman. Here's what you were listing were your issues. Which one of these are still your issues? And you're going to look at me and go, pretty much none of them. And I'm going to say, hey, do you walk around saying that all the time? All those issues are the past. I should feel good about myself. And they go, no, it's just who I am. And I'll say, you might want to remind yourself every once in a while that you had your moment in front of the cars, in front of traffic, and you stopped jumping and you mm-hmm. did something different. And mm-hmm. now you're a different person. Because we I appreciate forget. that. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I think part of any change worker, if you're doing change, is to point out to people that change has occurred. Because a real change worker, what I call sprinkling magic dust, and you can do it you do it at a coffee. You can do it anywhere. You can give someone, like I know how to change somebody's self-dialogue or shift through. I know how to do things that I can do something just walking and talking to someone for three minutes and they have a profound shift. They don't know I did it. They just know I feel better. Part of being a change worker, because that's sprinkling magic dust, and I love doing that. I love teaching people to do it. When people learn this, they start doing it to other people. They start learning a technique and using it, even in the civilians, as I call it. will be like, oh, my kid was doing this. And I said, hey, what are you saying to yourself? All that. But if I'm a change worker and you're coming to me for change, part of my job is, as I've helped you achieve the change, is to remind you that you've changed, to celebrate that you've changed. Because pretty soon it'll become... You're probably not in really impressed, CK, that you can get up and walk across the room. You probably don't, you don't stop every time you do it and go, my God, that's amazing. <laughs> I couldn't do that once. I used to fall down, <laughs> walk forward. Oh, my hands were all over the place. I was like, ah. now I just get up. I walk across the room. Look, I can chew gum at the same time. This is amazing. You don't do that. Why? It's just how you are. <laughs> Same thing with a client. They won't remember how effed up they felt when they got there because they don't feel it that way anymore. And part of my job is one, to celebrate the change, but two, to keep them cognizant. You've done an amazing thing. Your journey has been heroic to get from here to here. Because mm. that's another part about therapeutic work is I think part of what we're doing is teaching everyone that they're a hero in their journey. Mm. That their fear or their phobia or their feeling is I'm scared to get on stage. It seems silly. 
no and overcoming that you're slaying a dragon that's your mm -hmm. dragon it's not my dragon to me it's simple to do that i like doing that but for you that's death you're confronting mm -hmm. levels of fear I would have to take a gun. It's one reason I love working with performers, by the way, is because like I say, to get you nervous, if you have stage fright, I would literally have to, to get you that nervous, take a gun and shoot it right past your head. And you have to hear the bullet whiz by to get as nervous as someone with stage fright gets. Mm. You know what? I can't really do that legally with my clients. But if I know I'm getting you ready to get on stage, you're going to be pressure tested. And you're going to think when you're done, oh, that wasn't such a big thing because you're going to forget the amazing level of fear that you used to have. And in doing that, you're not honoring the person that had the guts to say, I'm gonna change this. I'm gonna confront this fear. I'm gonna go to somebody to get help. My little kid feels abject terror at the part of where I get on stage in front of people and I'm gonna do it anyway. I'm gonna find out how to do it. To me, that's a hero. And people diminish how heroic they are in their lives. Like I said, Am I someone with a mental illness who is damaged? Yeah. But am I also a heroic figure that at seven years old was dealing with shit that people that are grown ass adults would just put a gun in their mouth because their body and mind are screaming and end it. And that makes me a really strong human. Is it, oh, that thing in the past that just, by the way, here's the funny thing. I, I tell that story because it really inspires people. I didn't know it was weird. I didn't know it was weird. The group that we're in, all right, that we know each other, there was a speaker who said, hey, turn to someone you don't know and tell them something that you think they wouldn't know about you. And just without thinking, I went, the first time I really was thinking about killing myself, I was seven. And they were, they went like this. And in my head, the first thing I thought, is that really different for everybody? I thought everyone had that. Is that, I didn't realize. And then he was the one who said to me, I want to tell you something. That was so brave for you to say that. Everyone else was sharing these little, I am so impressed with that you're, he ended up becoming a client down the road mm. because he's like, that's the, the fact that you were just so upfront about it. And to me, it was no big thing. It was just who I was. Yeah. My meaning. I had to actually have somebody else do the jaw drop for me to go, oh my God, that is a monumental thing to at seven, not make that decision when my brain was telling me and I hadn't even fully understood things in my life. And, and the world was still full of magic and dragons. I, I was literally seven. I didn't have logic and reason yet. And I still didn't do it. Yeah. I didn't know that until someone else pointed it out to me. It was just part of my journey. That's one of the reasons why as a practice I take on now, if I see something from my awareness that someone's doing something that impressed me, that leaves me feeling inspired or motivated or wow, what bravery or courage or willingness they just display to others. I'll be like, I just make a point to underline that. Hey, you know, did you know that what you did? I really appreciate that. Da, 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 da. Yeah, you've done that with me, man. It feels good to have somebody notice you've done something well and honor it. And it's one of the things that impressed me about you, man, because we're all on our own spiritual journeys and they're different. We're different. I'm pretty out there and, and open and, and loud and whatever. I'm a guy from New Jersey, man. And you're quiet and thoughtful and more introspective, I think, probably. And you, you gave me a prepared list for the things that we should do to get on the tech. And I screwed the whole thing up and was like, can we just do Zoom? Because I know how to do Zoom, dude. I just get on and I start talking. That's what I do. I, I don't know from all that. 
we're very different and yet we are both people on that journey to self and we both bring different aspects to it and you've told me hey there's something that resonates in the way you do some stuff i want to learn and there's some parts about you that resonate with me and that part that's like appreciative and that would reach out to someone so let's actually jam a bit on that part yeah let's jam on the technicality of that because to me you are very similar to joe polish you wear your wounds on your sleeve one of the the first line or the second line in your bio was i had depression i suicidal okay i've never met a speaker that put that on the first line and i think that's beautiful i really mean it that requires willingness and courage to do that and someone like me who is a little bit more reserved come from a different culture that I'm exercising that muscle still, right. going on a journey from unconscious incompetence to, con- to mm-hmm. unconscious competence. So I'm curious to know, one, what is the, the benefit of living life that way? Mm-hmm. As well as what tactically disciplines, right, daily or otherwise, one could do to live a more authentic life? To live a more authentic life, when you wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, fuck Harvard. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Oh no, but to, to the advantage is I'm open and you can't hurt me. You can't hurt me because I'm the one bringing it up first. I don't care what you think of me. And that's somebody who's self-directed, but it's what I call unapologetically you. That's what I'm teaching people to be. This is who I am. Does that mean I'm going to stay this? No, I'm going to cry and grow and be a better person. But this is me, warts and all, as they say. And it's the the thing that you see a silverback gorilla. And it's a body thing, too. I show people to open your body up, to leave that part of you vulnerable, open, not to clench over. But it's also a metaphor because the silverback gorilla walks in like this because this vulnerable stomach area, they have it out. Every other animal protects it because that's where you get eviscerated by a, a tiger. And that's what they go for, the neck or the stomach area. That silverback gorilla doesn't do that because he has nothing to fear. He's the silverback. There is nothing that's going to hurt that thing. And what I'm teaching clients to do is have that attitude. You can't hurt me. The only thing, you can, if you kill me, that's existential. That's pretty bad. But quite frankly, one of the gifts of depression is, honestly, I go tomorrow, I have no fear of dying. It's like a friend I prayed for years to meet and one day I will. So I'm mm. so at peace with the concept of my own demise that you mm. can't even scare me there. Um, but that sense of self that says, it's, again, it's going to come out Jersey. I don't give a fuck what you think of me. I give a fuck, by the way, what you think of me because I like you're a friend of mine, right? <laughs> In general, I don't know you. Who the fuck are you? All right. Yeah. And that's, and by the way, there's a strength and weakness. This is a big thing with me. If you're not watching, you're seeing me with two hands facing each other. Every strength can be a weakness. Oh. I don't give a fuck is a great thing, but it's a one way street if that's all you can do. Because yeah. there are times you should give a fuck. In, in my previous career in entertainment, I should have given it a fuck a lot more because I was the guy who didn't give a shit. And I would walk up to a producer, a director, somebody who, who wronged a friend of mine, and I go, that's fucking wrong, dude. And everyone else is kowtowing in this. And they go, I'll punch you in the fucking mouth. Don't fucking do that. 
And therefore, they didn't want to work with me because they wanted to work with those guys. And was I really? Up? Yeah, I was got to be the dude. But it didn't get me what I wanted. Strategically, I should have shut up and just maybe put up with it. Every strength can be a weakness. So the strength of unapologetically you is, yeah, I'm fearless when it comes to certain social things that most people get hung up on. But I also can rub people the wrong way really easily and guess the people who get rubbed the wrong way the most the ones that probably need my help yeah the more insecure types for sure because i'm basically saying just by being me there's another way i it's honest for me to you dude i just the way you are is super endearing because as you say you don't give a fuck which i find it to be very freeing because that means Mm -hmm. i can be myself around you versus i have to be very civilized and yeah be really delicate with my words and that's just i'm I'm okay i'm polished enough to be able to do that but i prefer not to right i prefer just you you feel more comfortable because i'm being me totally get it and every client that comes to me part of it is they want to learn that but part of the appeal is as i tell them there's nothing that's fucked up about you that i don't either have done or have a friend who hasn't done i'm as fucked up as you i had to learn things in order to survive i can help you that's it so you're not going to get judged here you're not going to get judged anything you say you're going to get this reaction oh yeah i've had that (laughs) and that's an appeal because people feel okay i've got to put up a front I, i have friends who have been to therapists and clients who have been to therapists who will tell me yeah I went to my therapist for a year. I never mentioned that I didn't feel confident or I never mentioned this. Or I never mentioned, I go, why? And they're like, I don't know. I didn't feel comfortable. I'm like, well, that's the whole point of therapy, man. You're supposed to feel comfortable. If you don't have that rapport. So part of my superpower is my effed up journey in life makes most people feel comfortable because I'm so upfront around it and I'm so irreverent around it. And I can make jokes about wanting to kill yourself. And I can do things because I'm free. And they mm. want to be free like that. So tactically speaking, seeing you, right? Being mm-hmm. a client of you, take your courses. So I get that. But on this podcast right here, right now, what would be one tactic or discipline one could take on to step on that journey to be more free? To I think the easiest thing to do, and this is frustrated hypnotherapists that have come to me to learn because I, I had a good reputation over time of teaching hypnotherapists and specializing in doing inductions and taking people into trance. And I had done stage stuff, so they want to learn that. And so I have a, a you know a cachet and they come to me. I'm the dude, they're gonna learn from me. And in the first session, I'm like, I'm gonna show you how to breathe. And they're like, What? And they go, I know how to breathe. I'm gonna show you how to breathe. And I was thinking of one specific one, and I'm like, it's pissing you off right now, isn't it? And she's like, Yeah. I'm- pissed i'm here to learn hypnotherapy i'm like trust me just breathe so like, i'm fine i'm like trust me just breathe and she breathed and then she started crying mm. her defenses went down and she cried three sessions she cried every time she did the breathing because she had to let it out and i said that breathing thing that i'm showing you i'm taking you into hypnosis i'm getting you into a calm place i'm giving you a suggestion but i'm just showing you how to breathe because you're going to use that for the rest of your life until the day you die, you're breathing. Why not learn to do it in a way that suits you? So breathing is the most basic thing. And it's just look up diaphragm breathing, 
learn to breathe down in your belly when you're nervous. Because when you're saying to yourself something like, I can't, I, oh my God, what are they going to think of me? All right. Step out of yourself and see who cares what they think of that person. Step out of yourself and see, that's just a moment in time and a whole lifetime. Step out of yourself and see, hey, you know what? A hundred years from now, everyone's dead. Nothing they do. It doesn't matter. No one's going to remember they fumbled something or said something stupid. But most of all, breathe. Let mm -hmm. your shoulders down. Because if you make fight or flight happen, you're going to try and find the meaning that supports why your body's feeling that way. If you make your body calm, you're going to try and find logical meaning for why you're calm. If every time you would self-disclose in a relationship, you get real tense. Mm. And we've heard, you can just hear what if you're listening, you can hear what I just did. That moment where people give it up, they shift. They get real tense and they, you know what it really is. And they tell you what they're really feeling you can do that for yourself. You can learn to breathe in a way that allows your body to calm itself enough to realize this isn't a saber-toothed tiger in front of me. It's a human being I'm speaking to. It's a girl that I want to get to know. It's my husband. It's a teacher. It's just a human. Or, hey, you know what? Right now I'm in a job interview and that means a lot because I want to get this job. But... Either way, I survive. So that breathing is part of it. Noticing what you're saying to yourself is part of it because the first part is noticing. Before you can change it, you got to notice it. Most people don't even think that I talk to myself in my head. I had an experience. I went in during a bad depression back when I was first getting a handle on it because I didn't always have a handle on it and know what was going on. And I had hit a point where I really needed help and I was a mess. And I went in, they did an intake and the doctor said, do you hear voices? And I said, of course. And he started scribbling on the board, right? And what I meant was, of course I hear a voice. And I said to him, and I go, I talked to myself in my head. Don't you do that? And he looked at me quizzically because it was like, that's not how he defines it. I'm like, it's a voice. It's my voice. I'm talking to myself. We don't even pay attention. We don't think, oh, I'm having a discussion in my brain. Let me listen to what I'm saying and decide, does that work? Is that Do I want to say that to myself? We think, oh, I just say it to myself. No, we have choice of what we say. Any moment of the day, you can choose what to say in your head. So monitor the body, breathe for number one. Number two, what am I saying to myself? And a shortcut too is what's the tonology? If my tonology is like this. CK, you got to be calm. I'm in front of all these people. I better calm. <laughs> Guess what? If you're breathing in your diaphragm, here's your tonology. Usually when you hear people who calm themselves, their voice, their voice gets like this. They slow down. This is universal. Gets a little deeper. By the way, it's your better voice. It's your sex phone voice. My it's, sex phone voice. It's the, <laughs> CK, it's the luscious caramel voice of a DJ. It's that voice. Right? Yes, the nighttime DJ voice. When I talk like that, I get calm. Yeah. So why not talk like that in my mind? So if I was to say to myself in my mind, holy shit, this interview is going horribly. I bet CK hates me. Oh my God, I must look like an asshole. <laughs> I'm not going to get excited about it. Same languaging, just change the tonology. That's a shortcut. There's a million little tools, but again, the first thing you got to do is just be aware. Am I in fight or flight? If I'm in fight or flight, then 
I am literally lying to myself unless I'm about to die. And if I'm not about to die, then fight or flight isn't helping me right now. So let me breathe and calm my body first. And that's going to shift the rest of the formula significantly. If you can just learn that one skill. I appreciate that. Thank you. Do you I'm looking at the time. Do you mind spending a couple more sure, man. minutes to jam about the mechanics of the show? Is that cool? Must year. Okay, cool. Thank you. Appreciate it. So you came from a comedian background, stage hypnotist background. You know how to capture people's attention. Mm -hmm. You're not doing it virtually. You know how to dive into deeper uh, people's inner psyche. These are tremendous skills to have. I think especially right now, post-COVID, because now we're virtual. We need to you know, adapt new skills to capture people's attention in a Zoom or some kind of format. So knowing what, what do you think? Let's talk about the 80-20 principles or 80-20 skills. Sure. I want to learn from you. How do I capture people's attention? Because I can go deep, right, on the one-on-one, but be like someone who is like a show host, who is like pizzazz and sound bites and capture your attention and pattern interrupt. That's, I don't right now, so I'm curious. As someone with 20 plus years experience, what would you say to everyone who needs to learn the skills to capture people's attention in mass? All right. Let me give you my quick journey. I know 25, I started doing stand-up. 32, I was getting ready to get married and that lifestyle isn't a good one. So I went, I realized I loved the mind and I'd always been fascinated. Why not go to school for this? Now, 56. So I think it was almost been 31. It's been 25 years. Oh, don't tell my wife because that's also our anniversary. I must have screwed that up. And then I did some stage hypnosis, even though I hated stage hypnosis when I was a comic because they're not funny. All right. It's just the people that are doing funny stuff. And I knew at that age in my 30s, I said, I'm good. I'm real good at doing hypnosis with people, but I'm not seasoned as a human yet. I'm not, I'm wild still. I'm pretty rowdy and I'm not really. I can do technique with people, but I don't think I have the inner wisdom to do as well as I could do. And at this age, I feel like that's part of it, the wisdom of life, having lived life. Uh, the shortcut is spend 10 years as a comic and then study hypnotherapy and NLP and other cognitive stuff. Do that for 25 years and live a life and be totally honest about your fuck ups and you'll be fine. <laughs> so... <laughs> Awesome. Thank you. But, but for what you're saying, because you, after you saw me do a, a group thing with people and they were all on, you, you noticed, hey, you really are reaching other people as. It was, it, it went, it, to me, I, I'll, I'll make it public. It was layers upon layers of things that you did. It wasn't just a singular thing. You move on. It wasn't like a mental checklist, like step one, two, three, four, five, six, which a lot of the beginners would do but you're like layers upon layers of things. I'm like, I'm watching you like, wow, this guy, one is a master of his own, his craft. And two, he's doing it with a lot of compassion and, and making sure that people receive the, the gems. And if they don't get it, you move on to the next thing. And then that's another thing, right? Cause I would be the person with, Hey, wait a minute. That was a moment. I'm acknowledging you. So anyways, so know your skill set 
and have confidence in your skill set and realize in a group situation, you're painting with a broad brush, you're not going to reach everyone, but always be talking to someone and be aware that while you're talking to that person, other people are making meaning. So that's the part. And by the way, this is unconscious competence. This is hard for me to explain because I've done it for so long. And as a comic, I learned a long time ago, stage time, whether that's stage time of doing hypnosis with people, doing therapeutic interventions with people, stage time of anything, it's the stage time that makes you good. The more you do it, the better you get. You're seeing me after I've had three decades of experience in front of people and a quarter century of working with people, you're seeing a different me now. And a lot of it is unconscious. But that basic understanding that says, if I'm in front of a group and I give if I'm in front of one person, I give them this much value. That's great. I'm holding my hands about 10 inches apart. If I'm in front of 10 people and I give them all this much value, now I hold my hands two inches apart. That's 20 inches. I'm, I'm still giving a shitload of value to those people. The problem is when you're trying to give 10 inches of, of value to each human being, because that's when you do get caught up and did you get it, right? And I'm not here... Mm. I wasn't teaching a, a in-depth understanding. I was doing a, here's a quick and dirty on understanding the mind and what to do and how to change something. Mm. So for me, it was that learning to let go of the need to teach everyone every detail and realize some people are going to get it. Some people are who take a couple of exposures to get it. Some people probably aren't really set up to get it, but the ones that you do reach, you can change their lives. And as you witnessed, when I was talking to that group, it wasn't about the person I was ostensibly working with. Because mm -hmm. when I was done, I would go, Dan, what did you get? And they go, oh my God, when you did that. And I go, that's because I was really talking to you. I was working mm -hmm. with him, but I was talking to you. Uh, and that was also a masterful stroke there. <laughs> but think about it, man. I, I walk and chew gum at the same time. That's mm -hmm. basically how impressive it is to me. That's what I do because it's unconscious. But you, CK, you're still learning to walk in that realm. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to chew gum very well and walk yet. Give a toddler, all right? So you're still like, the, you're the toddler that's learned to walk, but still every once in a while is like, oh, how do I step this way? You ever watch a kid that's four? They can walk. They got it down. But every once in a while, they do something weird with their body. And you're like, oh, that's a little off balance. That's where yeah. you are right now as far as that skill set. So tactically speaking, you mentioned stage time, right? So logging the stage time, right? 10,000 hours or 10,000 experiments, whichever mental mm -hmm. model you want to go with. What would be the tactical suggestion to log the stage time, given that we're post-COVID? Should I start a weekly show to... For you personally? Yeah. I think well, I'm using me as an example because in my mind, any expert... They need to hone their skill of capturing people's attention yeah. on camera, in mass, in a group, in Zoom. So it's not just me. It's, I think it's everyone. So CK, if you remember the first time we talked online and we were just shooting the shit and I said, hey, I want you to try something that's going to be a little weird. Do you remember that? And I said, get really excited, like beyond any, get silly. And you're looking at me like, okay. And you're like, I can do that. And you got a little silly and you're like i'll see i can be open and i was like uh, dude no get silly like oh my god that is so wild and get yourself so up and oh my god that's the most exciting thing and you looked at me like you are just out of your mind but you upped your game after that because you are now more loose 
Yeah. I had you practice an extreme that is not your comfort zone. I had you say, my strength is I'm quiet and thoughtful and I'm very deep thinker and I yeah. have a great grasp of knowledge. The weakness of that is I tend to rely on that and not get emotional. So I said, do the opposite. I want you literally to feel like a jackass while you're doing it. Unless you do that, you're not doing it right. You're not stretching the muscle of getting excited. By the way, if you could see CK, if you're not watching, you're listening, he's getting this big child grin on his face. Yeah. His body's moving a little more. He's getting excited. He's just, he's just getting it. Like, just, <laughs> why? Because I'm getting excited. You're getting excited. We have mirror neurons. If I get excited, you get excited. By the way, great speaking scale. If you get yourself in the zone, you'll get them in the zone. So for you, particularly, it's where's the weak point? Go overboard. Go mm. way overboard and see when you're past the point of discomfort. So if it's speaking in front of a person, go speak in front of 10. And then speaking in front of one is not going to be that hard. Coming out of COVID, I think there's going to be a lot of social anxiety. I think eye contact is going to be weird because I don't leave the house because I have health issues. And the couple of times I have, I've noticed I'm not really looking people in the eye right now because they're all mm -hmm. like danger and I want to stay away from everyone. I don't want to engage people. I'm just, let me go get my stuff. I'm going to leave. COVID's going on. Afterwards, we're going to have to get used to it. I'm real good at looking at a camera to the point where I sometimes forget to look at the client directly because I can see my peripheral, what I need to see. Even when you're in trance and your eyes are closed, I'm staring at the camera because that's the eye I'm looking at, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to be weird. So for me, what I'm going to do after COVID is I'm going to go out and I'm going to really practice looking people in the eye again because I forgot that skill. It's going to be odd to do it. The only two people I look directly in their eyes are my son and my wife because they're the only two people I see in person for the last year almost. Mm. So that skill for me, and that's weird because I'm great at looking. I do eye contact wonderfully. I teach people confidence. That's weird to me to go, wow, that skill set's atrophied and it's going to be a little odd and a little invasive to talk to people eye to eye. Another part of me can't wait because it's great to have that connection, but the little kid part of me. It's, it's, a, new, it's a new challenge. It's a yeah, new challenge. It's an old challenge. It's become new again over time. So for anyone, it's where's the weakness and also what you're doing, man. You're, I love podcasts because people can practice a skill set and you're saying, oh, do I do a show? Do I do that? Well, you're already doing a show. You're learning how to interview someone. You're learning how to let someone ramble on and then bring them back to point, which you've done numerous times with me so far, right? You're learning all these skill sets that are going to serve you. So what is the goal beyond? If you're saying, hey, my goal is maybe do a show as indifferent than the show you're doing, because guess what? You're doing a show. But as indifferent, what's the skill sets I need? And let me practice the ones I'm uncomfortable with. You yeah. Know, I wish I had some esoteric, deep, Da, 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 but it's it is practice and push your comfort zone yeah to be really frank that this whole podcast journey has been it's been a godsend uh to me and because that as i was sharing the very beginning of our conversation my curiosity was so intense for my parents and teachers they had to shut it down mm -hmm. and and in my mind i made it wrong it wasn't until i found the medium podcast now i can really go in deep to a mental geek like me jam on some of the esoteric type things that a lot of people wouldn't be able to relate. And, and, and this gives me a creative outlet to really, really listen, but also at the same time, hone the voice as well as 
recreate the other person as well. So here's the strength, the CK strength. All those things are strengths, right? So then the question becomes, where's the weakness in it? What, where does relying on that become a weakness because I'm not developing this skill? So you are quiet, contemplative, a deep thinker, and you want to have deep discussions with people. All right. Those are four great points. Those are strengths. Where is that not maybe serving you with is the opposite skill set. So for me, I can have that kind of conversation, but as you and these people might know, because they're getting a little taste of me, I can be a total jackass. I can yeah. be the dumbest human in the room. I act like a child most of the time. Like I, I literally act like a 13 year old when I'm amongst my friends, my close friends. Yeah. I, that I never am serious. I'm always joking. I make stupid jokes like a 13 year old. Yeah. That's part of me too. But being able to say I can do both means I can do everything in between. Yeah. It gives you a full range of expression right. and different. It's neither extreme. It's never yeah, the extreme. Totally. Right. Yeah. So for you, CK, hey, you got that one part that's great. If you're going to say, hey, as a podcaster, you're going to learn to loosen up over time. You're going to feel yeah. more comfortable over time. Yeah, uh, You're going to talk over people and do anecdotes a little bit over time and maybe throw your personality. Or maybe you'll feel like, I like to just be the guy that interviews quietly. But you'll develop the pieces that you were not using because this was identity. I am CK Lynn. I'm an intelligent man. I am quiet. I am thoughtful. I am humble. I don't raise my voice. I don't sit there and do stupid shit in front of people. I certainly don't get excited in front of people like that. That's not what my culture taught me. My family taught me. That's not what men do. Whatever the fuck that message was. Yeah. It can limit you. So for you, for any of us, it's where's the point where I'm weak and how do I turn it into a strength? No, I appreciate that. And definitely, this is whereabouts you hit episode 100. So it's been 100 wow. episodes so far. And it's been great. And, and the more I do it, the more relaxed, right? Because now I I'm know more... you did 100. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you're going to be probably 110 when it, by the time this thing published. So 100 plus. And it's been really great. And I get to walk that path of unconscious competence to unconscious, unconscious incompetence to unconscious competence. When's the last time you looked at one of the first couple of episodes that you'd ever did? Oh my God. It's been a while. It's been a while. I All actually right, so cringe. I, I cringe. Here's my that. suggestion. I think you should listen to one. I'm certainly going to jump on one of them and say, because again, it's not about cringing. Oh, I'm so bad. It's about saying, wow, I really wasn't good at that. Look at me now and how much I've improved. And knowing that, hey, episode 200, I'm looking at this episode and going, God damn, I had a lot to learn. That's the part, right? <laughs> That's the part where your brain gets, oh, there's a progression. I got to honor the fact that I'm incredibly better than I was. That implies that as long as I keep doing it, I get even better. So yeah. if I think I'm at this level and I look at myself back then, I'm like, God, I was in the basement. That means I'm going to get to the next level because all I did was I practiced the skill set and I got better at it. So you can look at that and be embarrassed. Or you can look at that with a big ass smile on your face and go, my God. Well I appreciate that. Oh, I appreciate the reframe. Last question. You're taking people from anxiety to confidence. Mm -hmm. And effectively, what we're describing is so far over in different, in many different ways is the different path from 
unconscious incompetence, right? Embarrassment, anxiety to mm. confidence. So paint a picture for us. What's confidence like? How do you know when someone has confidence? How do you describe it? What's the experience of it? You can use yourself as an example. You can use your client's words as an example. Paint a picture for us. What is being 100% confident? All right. Let me, let me ask you a, a question, an imagination exercise. All right. There's two guys. They both walk into a room full of people. They both look like you, whoever you are out there in podcast land. One of them is extremely confident and one of them is totally self-conscious. How do you know? Because we all get it. We all know what someone who's confident looks like. We all know on an unconscious level. That's the great thing about truly being confident. People get it. Just like they say about being, getting back to the martial arts. The way somebody who knows they can kick your ass carries themselves is different than someone who thinks they can kick your ass or hopes they can kick your ass because those are the loud ones. Those are the mouthy ones. Those are the ones with something to prove. The professionals, they just know if you do something, I'm going to kill you and nothing's going to stop me. And therefore, they just walk through the world so confident. They're the silverbacks. So you've been confident. There's times you walk in a room, maybe in certain aspects of your life, probably having to do with your intelligence and learning and things like that, where you've walked in a room and realized, yeah, I'm feeling really good. You probably stood differently. You breathed differently. Your voice was a little deeper. Those are the externals. You're a little smoother and slower in your movements. There's a grace to it. Those are all things you can notice on the outside. On the inside, your voice is calm, just like my voice got calm. <sighs> You're seeing good things happening. You're realizing that fears and stuff are just an imagination exercise and they don't serve you. And you're able to just step out and realize I'm just walking into a room for 10 people. Who cares? And on the deepest level, you accept yourself. You realize I'm safe right now. Because again, we confuse discomfort with existential level danger. There is no danger of me to walk in a room of 10 people unless those 10 people have really serious ill intent and are armed, in which case I should probably not walk into that room. I have choice. I don't live a lifestyle where I'm in danger for real. Very five times in my life where I needed that adrenaline pump to stay alive. And if I didn't have it at that moment, I wouldn't be here. Every other time I was just using up energy needlessly and getting nervous and getting scared and getting unconfident how you walk how you talk there's all those indications you get it when you see someone who's confident like i said as soon as i asked you, you had a different ck image the one who's confident the one who's not so let me ask you this man what'd you notice when you looked at the confident ck that you didn't notice when you looked at the self-conscious ck in that little imagination exercise what was different how do you know one's confident yeah, I, th I think the silverback gorilla image that you used, it's, it's apt, it's beautiful. Essentially, walking with that swagger, mm -hmm. right? Breathe, relax, and the gorilla doesn't need to say much of anything because he's not insecure about himself. He doesn't need to make the 
the others known that he's a silverback. It's obvious that he's a silverback and he just be relaxed and exude that confidence. It's, and, and the difference is very subtle, right? The, Let me give you a, a metaphor that you might've heard. It's a, it was attributed to a Chinese uh, emperor or something like that, a martial artist. And it was, this man came to challenge the man who was the greatest martial artist in the world. And he boasted and he said, I can kill a bull with one hand. I can break rocks with my elbow. I can do all these things. He talked about all his accomplishments that he could do. And the other guy said, uh, really? I can break a grasshopper's leg. I can do that. You know, all these little things. So how are you the greatest martial artist? So he goes, oh, I'm not. Actually, my master was the greatest martial artist in the world, but no one knew because he never felt the need to tell him. That's confidence. Confidence is not just swagger. Gandhi was confident. Gandhi defeated the British Empire basically wearing a diaper with no resources other than the fact that he knew he was going to do it. That's confidence. So it doesn't have to be swagger, calm, quiet. It's just the understanding that says, I got this. I guess that's the biggest thing. The biggest go-to phrase that I give people is I got this. Because that's where we forget. Now, the phrase you gave on the that gathering that we're at mm -hmm. is, I fucking got this. It wasn't just, I got this. Yes, I really was. like that. So I wrote that down, actually. I fucking got this. I love that. And that's, again, that's the thing about languaging. In our own heads, man, people are robust. I have clients that do have never cursed. And it's funny, by the third session, they're coming in and they're like, they cursed for the first time. And I said to him, that shit stops fucker and they're just like delighted with themselves they're like oh my god i, I felt so free <laughs> your mind talk however you want in your mind it's fine it tends to be when we add the expletives in our own self-talk it tends to add juice to it it just does so whether guys if you're out there and you're church going kind of dude and you don't ever curse in your own mind hey every once in a while you might want to say something like i got this fucker and just see does it make you feel? If it does, do it again. If it doesn't, great. Don't do it. Speak only G-rated stuff in your head. But why not try the flexibility? Because it's a big one for me. Oh, by the way, man, I wanted to let you know this method I teach. It's not just something I do with people in person. There's a way to learn it. So if you're interested in learning this and you can't work with me one-on-one, -on -one, because quite frankly, I come at a high price point. There's a way that you can learn it online. There's an online way of studying this. It's an eight-week program in which you're getting me week after week, teaching you these principles while doing hypnotic techniques to help install them. It's a full, robust program. I'm very proud of it. And I think you have my website there. It's Life. I'll put in the show notes for sure. LifeFormulaMethod.com. If you want to find out more about me, go to KenDubner.com, which is my own website. And if you go to KenDubner.com, there is a giveaway. I think it's still there. If not, I'll try and put it back up where you give me your name and your email and I'll send you a couple of little gifties. And one of them, the first one is a breathing recording that teaches you how to breathe. It teaches you how to get calm. I give it to clients. I never work with a client without giving them that because I think it is, again, one of the most important core skills you could possibly have. Beautiful. Thank you for your generosity. Ken, I want to take a few moments to really acknowledge you for how you show up on this podcast. The first time when I met you, I knew that I had to talk to you. And I'm so glad I did because you brought 
your history, who you are, your commitment to this podcast wholeheartedly. Right away, you open your conversation with depression and, and then the most intimate, the most private part, most people don't ever share in a public way to others with my audience. So I'm so thankful for you, one, being who you are, two, tell your story, and three, share your beautiful life secret formula framework with my audience. So thank you for the way you show up. Thank you for acknowledging that.